Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ricky Burdett. I'm the director of LSE Cities. I'm sorry we're starting a little bit late, but uh, welcome to what is the first part of a two-part event. I think most of you know that, and I hope very much that you'll be able to stay uh, for the second part, even though, of course, actually having three representatives from the main political parties here live is much more exciting uh, and a, a, a great uh, gift to the LSE and its audiences. Um, this event is uh, organized by, jointly by LSE Cities, which as I say, I'm the director, and LSE London, uh, Tony Travers, many of you will know him, is the director of uh, that organization. Um, what we're looking at today in asking these three representatives is the future of cities in Britain, uh, and we will follow a well-known structure that Tony will describe in a moment. I just want to tell you what the logistics are for the evening. When this discussion ends, and it has to end at punctually by 8, a number of the speakers need to move on quickly, um, we are offering you wine and nibbles outside for all of you, because you need some sort of sustenance for the next bit. So please uh, uh, enjoy that uh, uh, on, as hosted uh, by these two organizations. Uh, if you want to go and get something to eat, go ahead. There are quite a few places around, but please come back so that you can see the uh, televised program. We will start the screening of the program at 8.15, but the, the, the main uh, leaders of 8 starts at 8.30. Um, at the end of that, uh, Tony has volunteered, and we have not forced him, to um, effectively make some comments or answer any questions about what you think has happened after that televised uh, debate. So it's quite a rich evening. It's wonderful to see so many of you here. And I'm going to pass over to Tony to uh, start the major event. Thank you. Right. Um, thank you uh, very much, Ricky, and thank you all for coming this evening. We are in the middle of, or towards the end, actually, as I must say, for these politicians who are fighting it. They want to hear it's nearer the end, I suspect, whatever the result. Towards the end of a long, four to five week, though it's actually been going on for longer than that, um, general election campaign. And of all the many issues that are raised in a, a general election campaign, there are always you know, three or four which dominate. But there are also, for many, many people, lots of other issues that are very important, and of course which, as and when, when there is a new government in power, or the existing government retakes power, whichever party is in government, or parties, there is then a need to address the full range of issues, not just the ones that get highlighted five or six times during the general election, but everything else that isn't highlighted. And one of the issues that undoubtedly will be important to uh, the government that takes office uh, on the 7th of May or soon after um, will be cities and the future of public policy towards cities. Just, you know, we all know the history of British industrialization and deindustrialization. Britain's cities, many of them, evolved because of rapid industrialization in the 19th century. We've gone through deindustrialization in Britain, probably ahead of most, or certainly as you know, one of the countries that went through deindustrialization first. And this has led to extraordinary pressures on cities, which successive governments from the late 1970s onwards have put in place policies to tackle. And the rebuilding of cities and the undoubted um, revival of 
the inner parts of most of our cities, with some success moving out from the centre, has been a feature of public policy in recent years. I want to say no more than that, really, except to say that uh, this is a sort of hustings event, and therefore we need to make sure we're fair to the parties here represented, to the individuals speaking, and for that reason, what I want to do is to ask each of them to speak for four to five minutes, three, four, five minutes, as an opening um, statement about the future of their party's policies for cities, and then to take questions, which of course, some of which may be uh, aimed at one of the three parties, and if they are, I will ask the chair, then handle them so as to ensure the pressure is broadly equal on all three during the evenings. I want to make sure that this is a sort of um, lively event. I think unlike the TV events, if anybody wants to applaud or react, I think that's not a bad thing. It is an election after all. But let's, um, let's try to keep it friendly and, uh, and polite so I don't have to use the event of public disorder thing that's sitting in front of me. <laughs> now, in the best traditions of ill-chaired meetings, uh, I didn't actually uh, talk to my distinguished three colleagues here who I need to introduce to what order they should go in. But we have three distinguished speakers. Uh, Tessa Jowell, who's been a minister in the present government, uh, who is here to represent the Labour Party. She is a, a London MP, a South London MP. Bob Neill, here to represent the Conservative Party, a shadow minister uh, during the recent parliament. Labour MP, that's uh, a Conservative MP, a London MP, I'm trying to say as well. And Lord Tom McNally, who is a distinguished uh, Liberal Democrat, the party's leader in the House of Lords, and has a long political career. I'm afraid three of you have a long political career, <laughs> don't you? Really? Oh, sorry about that. Okay, um, now I think I'm going to. Uh, Start with Tessa. I'm going to put you on the spot. Can I right, ask you to okay. go first, either from here or whichever you, you like for your opening? Yes, okay. Yeah. I'll, go, go I'll go and I'll statement, just we'll speak, um, speak from the. Um, <coughs> Sorry to uh, send you off first, but there we are. No, that's absolutely fine. Tessa Jowell for the Labour Thank you very much indeed. And um, thank you, everybody, for coming this evening. It's a really fantastic turnout and uh, I've been uh, very encouraged throughout this election where despite all the efforts of much of the media to kind of kill our interests, the debate and the curiosity about the issues has been um, as vibrant as the evidence of all you being here this evening. So I shall be unashamedly partisan in my pitch for the Labour Party um, about cities uh, regeneration and policy uh, for uh, future policy for cities and I would like to argue that um, over the last uh, 13 years uh, great cities like Leeds like Birmingham Manchester and, New and Newcastle have all uh, become resurgent uh, driven by uh, the development of new industries in combination with investment uh, by, uh, it, by the public sector in the creation of infrastructure. And I think it's notable um, how many um, cities have been regenerated, uh, certainly in part, by investment in culture. 
And of course, the important thing is that cities become uh, and are both economic engines, but also places where people want to live, not just in a transitory way, but places where people want to uh, move from being um, on their own to, uh, to bringing up their families and uh, building the layers, the generational layers of, uh, of community. Perhaps one of the biggest challenges has been dealing with um, areas of uh, acute deprivation, both, um, if you like, physical deprivation, but also the inequalities that, uh, by any measure, tend uh, to define so many of our cities. Um, hence, the importance of programs like the New Deal for Communities, which has now, um, now come to an end, and uh, uh, initiatives like the Working Neighbourhood Fund, which has helped move more than 200,000 people um, in England off out-of-work benefits. The regional development agencies uh, uh, have been absolutely vital uh, in providing both a structure and a focus for investment and regeneration, um, estimated to have uh, safeguarded uh, about to, uh, more than 200,000 jobs, uh, with a leverage ratio of about £4.50 for every pound of uh, taxpayers' money. So I think that we uh, have had uh, a lot of success in transforming cities, and transforming is a kind of rather overused word in an election campaign, but if I, th I think that you know, if you've gone to cities like uh, Manchester and Birmingham, uh, Liverpool 15 years ago and gone back uh, any time in the last two or three years, you would have felt the transformation was a perfectly uh, fair statement of the change. But clearly, um, this election is about the future. This election, more than anything else, is about the economy, about securing um, economic recovery, about um, maintaining a necessary level of public investment and public service in order to ensure that our cities uh, remain viable and uh, we don't see uh, the progress achieved uh, begin to fall back, which is why the balance uh, that we have struck in our deficit reduction program of um, uh, tax increases balanced by uh, a very detailed program of savings from the public sector linked to growth is absolutely critical to realise. One of the most important things that we have done for London is to restore the uh, Government of London uh, that the Conservatives under Mrs Thatcher removed. That has been, uh, again, um, a force which has changed and improved the capital and which we believe can be a model for other cities um, across the UK. And then, of course, there is outside London um, the growth of city regions uh, with the uh, ability to accrue um, additional powers to improve transport, uh, the development of skills, economic development, greater borrowing flexibility, and to deliver the benefits of those pooled budgets of what is called uh, the, the, the Total Place Programme. Also, uh, the value of elected mayors 
you know, the, uh, the elected mayor of London has been a very successful uh, innovation. Uh, elected mayors, uh, either in London or other parts of the country, similarly so. We do not, however, think that it's um, uh, desirable that a city should have mayors imposed on them. Just a couple, because Tony's giving me the eye. A couple of very quick points. Um, first of all, the importance of infrastructure. We are the only party um, in this election that has committed to the major infrastructure investment involved in Crossrail, um, upgrading Liverpool city centre or building the Manchester bus corridor. We also are committed to the creation of universal access to the next generation of high-speed broadband and believe that growth will be driven, certainly in very large part, the million jobs, um, by, growth, by jobs in the green industries. I am a proud Londoner. I played um, my part in bringing the Olympics to London. I feel very clear of the identity that I have um, as a Londoner. It was presented with great effect to the world by 30 young people from the East End of London who came with us to Singapore to win the Olympics for London. 30 young people who spoke uh, to, uh, 20 different nationalities, 22 uh, languages. Uh, our, our cities all have different faces, but as a Londoner, that for me, the diversity uh, of London is the face of London. But, but creating, the job of government is to create the space for cities to develop their own identity and to flourish with that. Thank you. You will have an opportunity to ask questions of any of the three uh, politicians here tonight. Uh, but next, I'm going to ask Bob Neill to put the case of the Conservative Party. Well, well, thank you very much, Tony. I, I'm, I'm delighted to come along as well. I better declare an interest because about uh, 30 odd years or, or so ago, I was a, a student. Uh, at this very institution, rather more than that actually, pushing, pushing 40 years ago now, where, um, where John Griffiths, amongst others, uh, tried to uh, get the principles of public law and other things into me. Uh, and I think I first came across the great George Jones, and I'm still something of a bit of a George Jonesite when it comes down uh, to a lot of these uh, issues. And uh, I must say that the lecture there is a bit, uh, a bit different from the way it was then, that's for sure. So, so, so it's, it's good to come back. Uh, and that actually made me think, uh, that we've actually seen a lot of change. Tessa's right in that regard in cities over uh, recent years, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to part company with her on some, and not all points, because I don't think policy for cities is something that is or should be something that's necessarily a purely partisan sort of ding-dong battle. I I'm a Londoner. I spent the whole of my political career in London, uh, in local government in London, on the GLC, uh, on the London Assembly, uh, and then subsequently as a London MP. But, of course, London is not the only city, and it's not necessarily typical uh, of uh, the cities in London. So let's broaden it out. And I'd suggest that whilst we have seen success stories, and in many ways London is a success story, though a patchy success story, you know, we see great uh, wealth and prosperity, but we still see within this global city, the only global city, if you like, in the UK, something like 39% of children growing up in poverty, so there's still some issues there. But you then see uh, other areas where, not just me, uh, but organisations uh, like um, the centre of cities uh, talk about failing cities. You go to Stoke-on-Trent, 
go to Doncaster, uh, you, you go to, to, to Barnsley, some of those uh, old northern industrial towns, they're lagging badly behind. And you've got a different type of city as well, the Cambridges, uh, the uh, uh, Milton Keynes's, the Brightons, uh, where on the back of new industry, new approaches, then there's a degree of vibrancy. So there's not a, a uniform pattern by any manner of means uh, within the cities. And that brings me back to where I think we need to take a fresh approach uh, to policy. One of the problems has been uh, that although the government has invested money, it has done so through a very centralised approach, it seems to me. The creation of the Mayor of London, which actually, I'll concede, uh, was the right thing to do. Uh, I was uh, an opponent of abolition of the GLC at the time, uh, and I think one of the refreshing things about David Cameron's leadership is a willingness uh, to accept that things have moved on uh, and we can learn from where things didn't work out before. So having a Mayor of London has worked. But as I say, London uh, is a pretty unique uh, uh, city within the UK. Uh, but in many other respects, government in this country is usually centralised. Uh, and when you look at the other cities, uh, as the uh, centre for cities and others have demonstrated, contrast the provincial cities with their equivalents uh, in other countries, and there's quite a big gap in, in terms of economic strength and competitiveness between London, which is right up there as one of the world players, uh, and then you get quite a gap until you get down to the, the position of the Bristols and many of the other significant provincial cities. Now, why is that? I suggest to you that comes from a highly centralised state. Britain is the most centralised state in Western Europe, perhaps in all the Western democracies. That's grown up under parties of both, uh, under governments of both parties, but it's a fact. Uh, and what I think we need to do is to restore initiative to the cities, and that involves restoring local initiative. So we want to take some of the things which have happened and put that together in, I think, a more comprehensible uh, fashion. Mayors are part, potentially, of, of the option. I agree with Tessa that they shouldn't be imposed, but we are proposing, therefore, uh, to uh, have a referendum in the 12 largest cities uh, in the UK so that they can the people there can decide uh, whether or not they want to have a directly elected mayor. And we'll be looking to give, if they choose to do so, directly elected mayors much greater powers uh, in relation to economic regeneration, greater say in relation to policing and a number of other key issues. The value that's uh, available there is, if you like, a, um, uh, a real driving force, as we've seen on the mayors of both parties uh, in London, to pull things together. But it's got to go more than just structure. Uh, there's got to be some leverage in a highly centralised local government finance system. Uh, that's why we are proposing uh, that uh, cities, whether they have mayors or leader of the council models, uh, should have the ability to keep the proceeds of new development for a period of time. So we will enable uh, cities of all types, large and small, uh, to keep the council tax that's generated from new residential development. We will give them the power to keep the business rate that's generated uh, from new business and commercial development for a period, say, of six years. There's no magic in the figure, but it's an important starting point. That's the first really significant transfer of resources from Treasury back uh, to local discretionary spending, and I think that is crucial. Infrastructure important, investment is important, we can't assume in the current economic circumstances that, that can purely be driven through conventional means of Treasury uh, grant funding. 
we shall give the cities the power to go to the market uh, to raise bonds. It's perfectly normal in Europe and it's perfectly normal uh, in most of uh, North America. It's, there's prudential borrowing at the moment, but the logic is to take that further. It works very well everywhere else. What else should we do? We should enable uh, cities to uh, make themselves economically competitive by giving them the option to discount the business rate, uh, to pull in business into their areas, to generate a genuine sense of competition. That's actually what made places like Manchester uh, and uh, Liverpool, Birmingham, Leeds powerful in the 18th and 19th centuries was that competition uh, between them. So it's to give them uh, that sense of, of initiative uh, there. The RDAs I'm not convinced by. At the end of the day, the arguments as to how much leverage they produce have been questioned by a lot of economists, uh, but they certainly are an expensive and a rather remote means of doing it. Many of the programs are necessary and are to be supported, but I don't think it's necessary to have the rather artificial regions that we have at the moment. So what we will be looking to do is to build upon the concept of the city regions uh, by giving local authorities in particular the cities and their hinterland, the power to come together to form clusters, uh, to, be, to form local economic partnerships, we will be able to take over the functions and the funding of the RDAs upon more natural units based uh, upon natural uh, economic areas uh, and natural and historic uh, communities of interest. That's giving back real power to the cities, and what I hope we'll then see turn is a situation where you have politicians who think it's not necessary to come to Westminster to make a difference, where they can actually think you can make a really big difference by being the mayor or being the leader of a big city council. And that would be a real transformation in our politics. And uh, last but definitely not least, uh, Tom McNally, who is going to speak to the Liberal Democrats. Uh, first of all, the kind of personal declarations. I didn't come to the LSE, I went to UCL. Um, but in my first year, I used to come down for uh, one lecture. There were some shared lectures in those days. And it was one of the most depressing periods of the whole week because you'd walk past that library and all the LSE students seemed to do nothing else but study in the library, which was... <laughs> I, I came to London in 1962 from the northwest of England. You'll get a, a kind of um, idea of how used I was uh, uh, prepared for metropolitan life in that I got my first digs near Victoria Station and for the first three days I caught the circle line from Victoria to Euston Square <laughs> until I thought there must be a quicker way of getting to college. Um, but what I do say is that I, from that day um, to this day, I'm still in awe of London. I think it is one of the truly great cities of the world. And I say this when I'm in London, and I also say when, I, when I'm in the north. I, I don't think there is any advantage in, in trying to pull London down. It is a great city and some, a source of great pride. Uh, and I think the... Uh, idea of a mayor for London has been a great success. I've got to say I, I don't think when the Labour Party planned it that they thought they would get Boris. On the other hand when they planned it they didn't plan it to get Ken either. Uh, so it's, um, 
it's been a, a, a great experiment in that case. Um, the other point uh, of your opening remarks, my 16-year-old son is a great fan of the Daily Show in, um, that comes across from the States. And apparently, the other day, they were uh, saying what wimps we were, uh, starting to flag after a mere four weeks of campaigning, <laughs> where the Americans never seemed to stop at all. Um, since the beginning of this campaign, I've used a brief that I, I received actually from the University of Birmingham, but it was so sobering, I thought it set the tone uh, for any of the discussions we were going to have uh, about the future. It says, the economy has contracted by more than 6% over the past year. Inflation is above target and the Treasury faces the twin problems of high levels of public borrowing and falls in revenue from tax receipts. The borrowing requirement will reach nearly 170 billion in 2009-10. Public debt as a proportion of GDP will rise from its historic lows of the 2000s to perhaps as high as 80% of GDP, twice the Maastricht guideline by the middle of the decade, fueling fears that the UK credit rating will be downgraded as financial markets fear such levels of debt cannot be sustained over the medium term. I say that because I think this election is taking place against that very sombre background and yet until perhaps at 8.30 this evening we may uh, finally get all three party leaders coming clean about the very, very difficult decisions that are going to be made about public expenditure. Uh, and one of my fears um, about the cities and about local government is, uh, you have said, Tony, we've all been around for quite a long time. Kindly meant. Uh, kindly meant and kindly accepted. But there is, in, in all those years, I've been knocking around Whitehall and Westminster for about 40 years. And I knew, know that there is a habit of the Treasury in particular uh, and Whitehall in general uh, to leave all the dirty decisions to local government. And I do fear that that might happen again, uh, that, that local government will find some horrendous cuts in support and then be asked uh, to balance the books by uh, real sharp-end cuts in, in local services. I think Bob um, uh, referred in, um, to the variety of problems that we face. I mean, it is different. London, Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds, Liverpool, and I do pay tribute to the record of the government. Um, I was involved in the early 80s uh, with some of those northwest cities. I, I, had a I was a member of parliament for a South Manchester constituency, um, although Stockport would kill me if I said that, they always <laughs> thought they were in Cheshire. Um, and I've got very strong um, family links with, with Liverpool. And I can tell you those cities were on their knees and in great despair at that time. And it is a joy now to see how those great northern cities have revitalised. And I think government intervention can take its credit for that. And as Bob said as well, we also have the, the self-generating successes, Cambridge, Reading, Milton Keynes, Brighton. But we also, as Bob said, had the, uh, we obviously read the same brief, Bob, Doncaster, Straight, Barnsley. But... And that is a real problem. I went to one northwest uh, town uh, where there was a considerable level of unemployment 
uh, among Asian youth whose parents had been brought there to work in a textile industry that no longer existed. And the immobility of that group um, and the lack of opportunity in the town uh, which they'd come to was very frightening in terms of their resentment. They felt they were British, they, they'd been born in Britain or been very young when they were brought to Britain and yet the deal that had brought their parents uh, there had disappeared. I welcome uh, the constructive nature of this debate so far. I think the, the conversion of both Labour and the Conservative Party to localism is to be welcomed and I, I say that with no sense of uh, irony. I think that um, the, the same brief, you didn't go down to the page which said that we spend, we raise 17% of our uh, local government expenditure locally uh, against an OECD average of 55%. We are the most over-centralized of the Western democracies. And I think that one of the challenges in uh, the uh, coming decade will be to experiment, to allow local authorities um, to uh, generate their own income, uh, make their own plans, have more control of income. Uh, one of the reasons why I think devolution to the English regions was such a failure, uh, was rejected, was that people aren't daft. They could see that what they were, were being offered was not genuine devolution in that the purse strings were being still tightly held uh, by um, Whitehall. So I think that the, the idea of devolution, uh, of financial decision-making, is to be welcomed. In the 80s and, and, and 90s, I used to work in public relations, working for a number of uh, cities who were regenerating and repositioning. I always used to think every city either had to be at the heart of or the gateway. There was only two choices. They were a heart of or a gateway. But interestingly that the research we did at that time comes up time and again that what makes a successful city efficient transport, affordable housing, safe streets, good schools, a healthy environment and efficient health service. And providing that is the, the task that makes a, a, a city um, a success. Within that as well, the one particular um, challenge for London <coughs> is um, that we have a great asset in the City of London, um, but it is, is an asset with problems of public <coughs> credibility. And I advised the Corporation of London for uh, quite a while. Oh, sorry. Are you okay, sir? Yeah, very good. I advise the corporation, if I was advising them now, I think I would advise them that all three political parties, whatever the outcome of the election, will want to see from the city some realisation of their responsibility for the damage that has occurred to our economy. Uh, I said at a, a meeting in the city the other week that they can't behave like Millwall fans chanting, you don't like us, but we don't care. Um, and I think that, that they will have to face up to that. My conclusion as well is that this gives um, a useful um, 
answer to one of the problems that will be facing voters as they go to the polls next Thursday. Are the Liberal Democrats fit for office and are we about to inflict weak and unstable government on the country? Well, as far as being fit for office is concerned, in this context, I would point out that six of our eight largest cities are now governed by the Liberal Democrats. And we offer their efficient government, uh, which has a habit of getting re-elected. As for unstable government, I would claim that two of the more successful, in fact, Bob quoted them, uh, successful um, uh, local authorities, uh, Birmingham and Leeds, both governed by a coalition of the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats. This is no indication of where we're going next Thursday. <laughs> I just say that uh, when the Daily Mail tries to frighten you, um, th there is an alternative and it does work. But I think we, we have seen, I think from the three of us, uh, a, a common analysis that we've got to take our local government more local. Uh, we've got to take on board and use that local power for the environmental agenda and we've also got to use it to provide the high skill uh, workforce that is going to be needed. Thank you very much. Well thank you all very very much and also for the um, beautifully consensual way in which the opposition was done, or the, the, the inter-party uh, trading was done. Um, I'm going to ask just, I'm going to open it to the audience very, very soon, so you can ask a question. I just want to ask one question, perhaps briefly, of uh, uh, the three parties, and that is design. The, 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 the way in which design can make the difference between a city just being a place and a city that is attractive and in fact, economically more successful. In fact, I'll just go in the same order that you spoke originally, so starting with you, Tessa. Um, how do you think design can make a difference, particularly if I can ally design to a time when we have much less money for investment? So how can design do things that a lack of money will make otherwise more difficult? Well, I think I've uh, learnt a lot about this, actually, over the five years that we've been developing the Olympic Park, greatly assisted by Ricky Burdett and uh, Richard Rogers, uh, who've been really at the forefront of um, making sure that the, uh, the buildings and the Olympic Park um, meet um, a high standard and quality of design. Now, I think that I, I remember one of uh, a, a big political battle that I was involved in when I was a, uh, a councillor in Camden. And it was at a period in the early 70s when um, there was a, an absolutely convinced view that to uh, demolish um, three streets of you know, those small two-story Victorian houses and to replace them with um, a tower block on its side would give people improved amenity. And of course, you know, those were decisions that uh, were fashionable at the time, but uh, proved 
to be absolutely disastrous. It was a big political fa uh, uh, failure by me, loss, um, because we lost the campaign to save the houses by one vote, and um, the, the, the ward that I represented regretted it ever after. Um, but design is important, and I think it's a mistake to believe that design is necessarily more expensive. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, as we moved into, we move into straightened circumstances um, and there is just much less money to spend, we shouldn't believe that uh, an inevitable consequence of that is that anything which is built uh, by local government will inevitably be uh, wholly functional and not very attractive because all sorts of other things follow from that. Um, the, you know, the, that you know, buildings create a footprint uh, that if they're ugly, uh, people don't really want to spend time in. And uh, I, I think that one of the great things about London is the simplicity of a lot of the public realm. If I can just very quickly uh, make these two points, Tony. One is, come to Brixton and see Windrush Square. Um, which has just been opened. It was a piece of derelict land where there was a lot of prostitution and drug dealing until it was opened as a pure public space, you know, a public realm in its purest sense, which attracts people, people gather there, and it is the democratic space in which people congregate as equals. And it's absolutely glorious. The second thing I'd like you to come and see is the school, the academy, which is being de designed by Zaha Hadid um, in one of the poorest parts of my constituency, which has, uh, serving an estate, which has the or had the highest rate of knife crime in London. Now, how do you make young people feel that they have a value and that they're worth investment. You create a beautiful space in which they can go to school. And the, um, I had a discussion about, the police, uh, about this with the police recently, because gangs in this particular part of Brixton is a huge problem. And the borough commander, um, or the acting borough commander, said to me, but of course we can hope that this is the last generation of these, these children for whom identity and a sense of achievement can only come from gangs because uh, the Evelyn Grace Academy is a first-rate school that children are proud to say that they're students at. And what's more, uh, they will be even prouder once they move out of their temporary building and into this glorious, glorious Zaha Hadid uh, designed building, which again also creates amenity, greater amenity to this part of Brixton. So go for design. Don't put up with anything which is purely functional and ugly because people tell you that it's cheaper and we can't afford things that look beautiful. We'll regret it for the next 50 years. Okay, thank you very much. Bob? I think one of the things that we should do is, is to take on board Tessa's point, which is to recognise that Good quality design, beautiful design, needn't be expensive. Mate. That is absolutely right. To do that, we have to think outside of the box. <coughs> that requires a lot more imagination, I think, uh, on the part uh, of politicians uh, and um, local authority uh, officers as much as it does on the part of developers uh, as well. Um, I think Terry Farrell made a very fair point uh, that about the political importance of design uh, when he said at a meeting I was at, 
he, he envisaged the ideal situation being in a world where the, in a big city the mayor, say the leader of the council, was the chief urban planner. And I think that's really right. Mm -hmm. I think in city governance, urban planning in the proper sense is a really key function. And therefore we need to have uh, a political process which uh, brings that to the centre. Now, a couple of things stem from that. We ought to remove some of the obstacles uh, to making sure that uh, beautiful uh, and inspirational is also affordable. Partly is things we could do with the local government procurement process. That's hugely convoluted and expensive, and I think there's a great deal that we could do to strip out some of the obstacles uh, there. Second thing uh, that we can do, and that we would propose to do if we were in government, uh, is to give greater emphasis uh, within the planning considerations, within the hierarchy of planning considerations, to quality of design. Uh, a shadow planning minister, I've said that we would um, go down the route of uh, revising the various PPSs, PPGs which exist, to create a national framework of planning priority. And within that, we will be entrenching the importance that we <coughs> give to good quality design. So I think that is absolutely uh, crucial. The third thing that we need to do uh, is also to change the planning process, to recognise that it's linked inextricably to the political governance of great cities, uh, so that communities themselves have a greater sense of, of uh, involvement in the process, in the development of the designs. It can happen in good areas at now, uh, uh, you know, and there are local authorities who are doing good work, there's good practice out there. But we ought to be having to a situation where those developers who take the trouble to go through quite detailed pre-application consultations with the communities where they're building uh, to try and take people with them are rewarded uh, within the planning process for that effort. Uh, and that involves, I think, entrenching the sort of work you see through inquiry by design, charrettes and so on, giving that uh, a, a greater um, emphasis within the planning process. Also, at the other level, by getting the politicians involved in a positive rather than a negative way. Because very often at the moment, uh, the politicians are kept at arm's length uh, from the development uh, of projects because of the predetermination rules which have grown up through the common law over a pre period of time and have been rather entrenched in the codes of conduct. So we would abolish the predetermination rule. Uh, so local councillors would not be inhibited from commenting on planning applications. And their role then will be almost as brokers on behalf of the community. Uh, and I want not just the officers to be involved uh, with the developers in the community. In the discussions, I want the politicians to be involved in there as well. And funnily enough, um, this may be taking by, uh, you know, bipartisanship to an extreme for me, Tony, but a good example of how that can be properly done is actually Ken Livingston, because uh, Ken, as a one-man planning authority, uh, worked up a system uh, for uh, being involved in pre-application discussions with developers for strategic mm -hmm. projects, which was done perfectly properly and without uh, any suggestion of any impropriety, uh, and on a number of circumstances enabled sites to be uh, development projects to be changed in a way which made them more acceptable, improved them. Now that's something which we should be looking to do uh, in every local authority, and Boris, I'd say, took that on board. So there are good precedents to, to build that design in a really practical way through those three or four specific suggestions I've made. Okay, thank you very much. Tom. Yeah. My only worry of being about for a long time is I can remember <coughs> local politicians being involved in planning which has ended up with them being in jail, so it's, it's a, a balance in... in uh, uh, on, on the question about... I, I agree entirely. Uh, 
beauty of imagination in design is so important in giving a quality of life to the people who live there. Uh, and Tessa's right. In a way, the, there's a great need for politicians and planners and architects uh, to learn some of the, the, the lessons from the 60s and, and 70s. I, re I remember going through Southwark once. I, my murky past involves the Labour Party and I was driving with a Labour councillor and there was all these great fingers of tower blocks sticking up and he said, you know, I see those and I think of them as monuments to socialism. You always remember that. And of course, they were built with the greatest of good intentions to get rid of some of those uh, slums after the war. Liverpool cleared street after street and decanted a whole population to Skemmersdale um, uh, and to uh, an alienation from, from, from their communities. Um, it, it does really need a, a great deal. What one of the, I've got to say, one of the most, uh, the talk about the arrogance of politicians, I once had to attend uh, a planners meeting and I'd never heard uh, so many arrogant people who knew best in my life and I told them so as well. Um, and also things like that look good but do they work in practice? I remember when I was Member of Parliament for Stockport uh, they built a wonderful new uh, block of houses, all heated by the most up-to-date underfloor heating. The only problem is it cost a fortune to run, and so the people switched mm. off their underfloor mm. heating and put paraffin heaters in, and the paraffin heaters turned all the walls yes. black with yeah. damp. But the initial mistake was the designer who thought that people in the, uh, of, of low incomes would be able to pay for the heating that he was designing into the property. I also agree with Tessa about um, the um, open spaces. I, I think it is one of the great things uh, about London, but I, I think the other cities are learning as well that where you can create um, open spaces that people can enjoy. It lifts the whole spirit of, of, of a community. My only worry, and I think all three parties need to worry about it, and particularly in the South East, is that the pressure on population will start to nibble at the green belt. And, and I do think that, that the green belt and the green belt around most of our big conurbations that green belt has been one of the, the, the best pieces uh, of social engineering and I think we need to defend it with great care. Okay, right, now your turn. Um, and usually you don't have to say you are, this is an election hosting. So uh, let's try and keep the questions short. And of course you can say who you are if you want, don't, you don't have to, but um, just keep trying to keep the questions short and if I can ask the have the answer short, and then we'll see if we can get through you know, eight or nine of these in the next uh, 30, 35 minutes. Right, um, uh, which hand did I see first? Gentleman there with a smile, nice smile, <laughs> smile, help. Thank you. Um, I, just quickly before my question, uh, Windrush Square is beautiful, but it was, it didn't, that redesign didn't in itself deal with drug abuse or prostitution. Uh, they've just gone round the corner. Uh, but uh, I think, 
Overall, I've been pretty uninspired uh, by the three of you, unfortunately, um, because I think there's a real lack of imagination. Um, you, you mentioned it, Lord McNally, that the country is now bankrupt. There is no money left. And yet no one seems to have any idea of how we're going to carry on dealing with deprivation in society, in the cities, when there is no money. I mean, decentralization is maybe a, a very, yeah, going to be quite helpful, but that's not going to solve the problems. What do we do now that there is no, no state funding? That's a very big question. In fairness to the speakers, we have explicitly asked them to address design and... Um, and I, it's not for me to defend uh, the three political parties, but they can do that for themselves. But So if I can just start by making that point, we did explicitly ask them to address the future of cities, and I agree it does include your point, and, uh, but we also asked them to concentrate on the things they have concentrated on. Uh, let me do okay, this. Can I do, I'll, I'll rephrase it. Is design only about aesthetics, or can it also be about deprivation? That's good. Very good. Right, well done. <laughs> now, there's a model for everybody else. We want that kind of question. Uh, Bob, you can go first this time. I think the answer is, yeah, of course it is about more than aesthetics. I think you're absolutely right there. And how do we try uh, and get around the fact of uh, dealing with deprivation uh, at a time when money is short? Well, part of it, I think, is giving people... Is they making more effective use of such money as is available? And there's going to be some available, of course, uh, but it is going to be tougher and tighter. So I think we have to be much, much more rigorous uh, uh, about concentrating the money that's available on the front line. One of my concerns, for example, uh, with the way in which we deal with um, economic regeneration, which is one of the key, but not the sole key bit of dealing with deprivation, is one of the things is creating jobs, creating work for people, giving not just the money that comes from having jobs, but also the sort of sense of pride, the sense of achievement, the sort of sense of focus, if you like. Uh, to your life. That's hugely important. I think there's an awful lot of, too many agencies are involved at the moment um, chasing round limited pots of money. I think we need to really rigorously slim down the number of agencies which are in, involved uh, in this. Um, Thames Gateway is the most complicated example where it looks like the wiring diagram off an exocet or something like that to work out uh, how the funding streams go. So I think we need to take a very rigorous approach to concentrate that. And my preference is to concentrate it uh, via mechanisms which are uh, democratically uh, accountable. Second thing is to reckon that the public sector may not always be the best deliverer of these things. It's probably it will generally be the commissioner uh, uh, of this work, but in many ways uh, it may be either the private sector or social enterprises and the third sector may be as effective at delivering programmes to get people back into work, for example. Uh, to uh, uh, set up uh, projects to deal with particular areas of youth advantage, to get schools going in particular areas. So I think an open-mindedness uh, in the way in which we commission uh, and deliver uh, would be uh, an important point of it. Uh, and concentrating programmes themselves. So we have, for, for example, pledged that we should have a single uh, programme to get a single work programme uh, for young people. Uh, and uh, expect of young people at an early stage uh, that if they're not able to get into employment or training, then they ought to be giving something back uh, to society in other ways uh, to encourage a, a broader sense of involvement within the community. Now, none of those are going to be a silver bullet. I think you'd be dishonest of any politician to say that they are. But I think taken together, they can make a real contribution to make both making the money for, go further and secondly, saying to people, this isn't just about the state coming along and doing something either to you or for you. It's about the state acting as a facilitator and an encourager 
uh, which then pulls other organisations, individuals and voluntary groups in with them. Uh, and I think there's a real role uh, for governments in the cities at all levels uh, to be much more imaginatively involved uh, in that. Okay, Tom. <clears throat> yeah, I, th I think a lot of hard thinking is going on. If, if we sound like, uh, as Bob just said, we have no silver bullets, that's because it's true. Um, on the other hand, um, you're wrong, we're not bankrupt. We're going to face a very difficult time. They had faced a very difficult time just after the war. Uh, we faced a very difficult time in the mid-70s. Uh, countries as strong as we are and as rich as we are should be able to manage this. But we have got some tough decisions to make. Um, I think there is going to be um, a rethink um, about the problem of um, welfare dependency, uh, that group in the <coughs> whatever percentage you give it, who don't seem to be able to break out of the welfare dependency. Uh, I think there is going to be more use of uh, the third sector voluntary organisations to see if they can handle some of these uh, matters better. Um, but what I do worry, um, when the Institute of Fiscal Studies made their pronouncements the other day, they didn't make any pronouncements about um, what, or I didn't see any, of what um, uh, cuts that they were talking about would have on unemployment. And as Mrs. Thatcher found in the 1980s, um, you can allow unemployment to rise uh, to solve one uh, perceived economic problem, uh, but it doesn't save your public expenditure because you're then spending it on unemployment <coughs> benefit. And that's why we, the Liberal Democrats, do share the government's analysis that until we're more convinced um, that the um, recovery is sustained and sustainable, um, we should keep uh, the present levels of expenditure going. Uh, because I, I do fear a, a double recession. I do fear um, rising unemployment. And I do fear if the approach to the deficit is simply slash and burn, that maintaining social cohesion will become very, very difficult. So I, I, I think it's going to be difficult for, 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 for dealing with the kind of problems you're going to say. There's going to be less money, um, and we're going to have to concentrate that money uh, more than perhaps we've done before. Uh, but uh, like Bob, I don't offer any silver bullets. Okay. Tessa? Um, I think it was Mario Cuomo who said, um, you know, we campaign in, in, in poetry and we govern in prose. So I'm sorry if you've had too much prose this evening. Um, but what I, I think what I would say is that, you know, Tom is right. Um, you know, we are in a very, very... You're supposed to say, I agree with Tom. That's <laughs> <laughs> Not this week. That was only the first week. <laughs> That's over. <laughs> um, but I think, I, I, you see, I think the point is that we've got to look at not just how we save the money um, in the short term, but how we build 
a long-term platform for recovery. And the fact about London is that 50, you know, by 2015, 50% of the jobs in London will require people with graduate level or above qualifications. So uh, we will never uh, rebuild a sustainable economy for London unless we invest in skills. Uh, it's one of the great achievements, actually, that I hope the Olympics uh, will be able to look back on, that the populations of those Olympic boroughs are more skilled um, after the Olympics than was the case, before, uh, case beforehand, because uh, a pool of, uh, of um, a skilled workforce uh, will uh, create uh, the jobs which in turn create growth. And in London, it's uh, highly likely that that greater growth will be in the creative industries um, and will also be in the, uh, as, as I said earlier, in the, the, the green economy. So I think that uh, the, the, the other risk, sorry, this deals with the deprivation bit of your very elegant question. Um, the, I mean, the other great risk, and it's something that I worry about with London at all, uh, uh, London a lot, is that it is a tale of two cities. Uh, one city enjoyed by the very rich, and another a city of, um, of the very poor. And um, I think Bob referred to the, the child poverty figures. Actually, child poverty has come down very substantially to round about 30% from 49%, um, um, sorry, 39% at the time that uh, Labour came into power. And that's come about by a number of means, sure start, better education, uh, tax credits. And that's why you know, the, 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 the child tax credits and the, the child trust funds are so important, child trust funds, because the great driver of inequality in London is not so much income inequality, but it's uh, inequality in wealth. And uh, you have a city of enormous variations of wealth. The big challenge for poor families who may never uh, face the prospect of owning their own home in London is to build some assets because only by enabling families to build assets do you have any kind of chance of dealing with uh, the degree of wealth inequality. Okay, now, um, we're going well. I'm going to beg both questioners and answerers to be a fraction shorter so we can get through more. <laughs> he said ominously. Right, right. Um, let's try... Um, in the very middle here, just to make it difficult to get the. Um, let's try and uh, right in the middle here. Oh well, there were two of you actually. I did mean next okay. door. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, could I perhaps? No. Yeah. Um, could I perhaps ask the converse question? You know, city design about more than deprivation. We've heard a lot about economic growth, about wealthy cities. Our city's about more about that, about transport, about density, about open spaces, about quality of life, rather than just wealth and money. Mm. Okay, quality of, of life as well as wealth and money. <coughs> Can we really try very hard to keep it short? Um, yeah. Tom, yeah. Tom, well, Tessa, Tom, one of the things that will keep London ahead of Frankfurt and other uh, competing financial capitals is that London does offer a better quality of life. Uh, when I worked for the Corporation of London we did a 
very in-depth survey of the uh, people who were actually working in the city. And it was very interesting, actually, that the, the top requirement was good transport. Mm. Um, and when asked why they liked uh, the uh, working in London, the top was the cultural diversity of London. I think, as you say, when you go to the other end of the scheme, people are looking for a, a more holistic offer uh, than just a, a big wage packet. I mean, not I have nothing against Zurich, but and I'm sure that it's a very nice place to live. But but not all the money in the world would persuade me to uh, live in Zurich. Whereas I'm very happy and and did for 40 years live in London. I think you've lost the Zurich vote. I I know. Know. <laughs> um, Tessa. Yes, ab absolutely. More about uh, more about quality of life, and um, you know, Tom is right that uh, one of the reasons that uh, London has been such a successful engine of wealth is uh, that people want to come and live here, and they want to come and live here not just to earn a decent income, but they want to come and live here because it's an, uh, an uh, absolutely. Um, lovely place to live and the culture of London, the museums, galleries, um, theatres uh, are a major draw and you know every time um, people are asked what are the qualities of London uh, that they value, uh, they put those and they tend to put those higher than that this is a place to uh, to do business, and I was um, I was just talking again. I'm about to lose both the Geneva and the Lewis Hamilton vote very quickly, because Lewis Hamilton was uh, waxing lyrical to me a couple of years ago about the joys of living in Geneva, and I just thought, how sad that you want to live in Geneva rather than in London, mm. and you know, pay a bit more in tax in London, but enjoy yeah, yeah. the amazing city that uh, London is. Now, before I start getting myself into a lot of trouble, I don't know Geneva except Lake Geneva, which is beautiful, but I'm afraid it's a wholly partisan, heartfelt expression of my love of London. I sort of think, how could you possibly want to live anywhere else when you could live in London? No, Tony, you, could I just, you, Tony, want to, you want to choose on a Swiss city and Oh, is this going to be the theme oh, of the oh, evening? Is anybody here from Switzerland? <laughs> see anybody that's a mercy isn't it right okay Bob just wait, just wait till Twitter gets going yes, yes, yes. When, when I was a student here three of us went on an old Ford console uh, down to Italy and the car broke down in Luzerne on the way back <laughs> and, I, and I wouldn't want to have a car break down in Luzerne if I could have it break down in London now if that's any help uh, right that's the three keep going I, I, and again I think we are going to be all, all saying I agree with Tom it's, of course it's about uh, those other things as well you're absolutely right the two, can't, the, the two inevitably interlink so that's the key thing uh, it's the financial success that produces the wealth which can then be reinvested in some measure in uh, the quality of life. So you can't have that good quality without it, but it's not mm. the be-all and the end-all. That's the key thing. The other, just other thing I was going to say is I agree with what everyone said uh, about the fantastic offer that London has. It's also worth remembering though, that sometimes all of us, and certainly observers from outside, think of the London offer uh, largely in terms of the centre of London. Uh, yeah, and all the, the, the huge goods and uh, wonderful things are there. But of course, there's a huge this is lot about more to than be London. a promotion for Dulwich Park. <laughs> well, actually, it is exactly part of that, isn't it? Lot, lot of, most Londoners live in the suburbs. 
Uh, and what we mustn't forget, too, is the importance of the quality of life that the suburbs can bring. Lots of people put up with um, a less than pleasant commute up from uh, my constituency and parts of Tessa's constituency and so on because they value the suburbs, and that comes back to the point Tom made in relation to an earlier question about getting the balance right. So you keep the green spaces, you keep the, the established family housing that's usually important uh, for people in the suburbs and balance that off uh, with the vibrancy that you get in the city centre and getting those two bits. Remember that they're both key parts of the equation is really important. Tony, can I just make this one very short point yep. as well? The interesting thing about culture as, as part of regeneration mm -hmm. is Birmingham, Liverpool, Absolutely. Manchester, Newcastle, Gateshead have all made major investments yeah. in their, their cultural offer as part of their regeneration and it's been part of the mm. success of those. Okay, thanks for that. Now, um, woman here. Yep. Um, now let's really try and speed up and see how many we can get. Yep, go on. Um, okay, I'd like to ask um, all three of you what your attitude is towards the increasing privatisation of what used to be public space in all our cities. Uh, we're increasingly seeing um, public squares, uh, buildings, shopping malls, <coughs> all kinds of areas uh, not being run by the police anymore, but being run by um, private security guards according to all sorts of weird rules that are okay. imposed by the um, companies that own these spaces. Okay. And what your policies are. a very good question. Straightforward question. Tessa, privatised public space, what? Uh, well, uh, you know, I'm in favour of shopping malls within reason, um, but I don't like the idea of um, in, what, what have been public spaces uh, being, uh, you know, people being excluded from you know what have been uh, public spaces, and I think that that you know I, I mean I can't actually I can't think of an example off the top of my head, and I can't think of a reason why uh, you could ever make a case for privatising what had previously been a public space shared by all. And uh, actually, I mean, one of the things that you know I'm I am very keen on, and uh, we've offered in our manifesto, for instance. Is um, which is a which which is not privatisation and it's not simply sort of control by the council is the development of cooperative approaches to the development of land uh, and development of community facilities. Um, you know, I hate those tracts of land which are usually used for you know as as, um, as dogs lavatories or scrubby bits of bushes in the middle of uh, council estates between blocks. And where councils have been really creative, like Lambeth Council, which is part of my constituency, they've been given to the tenants and residents to develop as they want to. And they've developed them as allotments or communal gardens or whatever. So I think that, um, you know, I, we don't want London taken over by shopping malls or other, um, you know, commercial development. We do want London as a city that celebrates its public space. And that's why. Um, you know, we can talk more about the displacement um, from Windrush Square, but Windrush Square and that part of Brixton will change it. Okay, Bob. 
I think we're very careful about the terminology that we use, because in many <coughs> cases what we're talking about here is that the land may be privately owned, it may have been privately acquired, but they may, but it, it is uh, nonetheless very often open to the public, but I accept that sometimes an issue as to the conditions that are set upon that access. Now, there's a bit of a trade-off here. On the one hand, there's a question to what extent the state should interfere uh, with proprietary rights. The other point is the value of encouraging uh, landowners to make ex the public uh, able to get into a lot, a lot of those lands. Um, you know, I'll give you an example where I think um, it's the sort of thing you may be thinking about. When I was on the London Assembly, I was always having terrible trouble, and so was Ken, uh, and I think so does Boris now, uh, if you tried to film or do an interview outside City Hall, because it's owned by More London, uh, and they really didn't like uh, oh, these dangerous right. people. Um, uh, you know, Ken and I might have been regarded as dangerous people, but it's questionable. You know, doing interviews with journos outside More London Bridge, and I've got to say, I think that was pretty over the top. Um, yeah, on the other hand, if they did something to stop people uh, doing skateboarding at about 50 mile an hour through crowds of people, that perhaps was yeah. a, a more desirable and, uh, and sensible approach to it. So I think it's firstly uh, when local authorities give the planning permission, seeing what they can do in terms of, uh, of the conditions of the set uh, to be uh, constructive and talking that through to make sure that there is sensible public access. Uh, and secondly, I do think perhaps we need to have a conversation with some of the big property companies uh, in London, saying I think I hope the mayor can do, uh, and to find a more enlightened approach. And on the one hand, you get the benefits of the private investment, getting bringing these bits of land back into use. But on the other hand, you don't get something which is so paranoid and over the top um, uh, that you uh, make it sort of unpleasant. We've got a shopping mall in Bromley actually, where they're pretty good uh, there. They do have security guards for obvious reasons but they're pretty sensible, they let charity collections go on and so on, so that's mm -hmm. a, you know, a more sensible sort of model. Tom. At one stage I was the Director General of the Retail Consortium and I used to make speeches about um, shopping the new leisure experience, um, which my wife finds absolutely hilarious since the most I spend in any shop is about two minutes if I'm buying anything. Um, but there is a balance. I mean, if you create a, a shopping mall, you do want to give people a pleasant experience, and therefore you use your um, uh, own staff to try and make sure that, that they do get that. And the problem is that these public spaces within shopping malls can become uh, gathering points that make people feel threatened or uncomfortable uh, and thus destroy. Uh, the experience it, it, with all these things it, it's it's a balance and I think that the shopping malls the best ones um, manage to do it uh, as Bob said without being um, over officious but but do mm. make sure that the, the bulk of people using them um, get to use them for what they're intended okay now have we are, let's try a, a question on anybody on architecture planning aesthetics let's try and stick I'm sorry I don't want to Okay, gentleman here, go on. Um, design. Can, can the Pardon? Conservatives and Liberals be specific about what they, how they will, or what agency or vehicle they'll use to deliver good design? Right. And Tessa, could she explain what green technologies actually means? Because she claims that they're creating work in, in, in that area. I'm so sorry. I've, I'm just having difficulty yes, hearing you. The first, no, it's all right. The first question I think was, could you ask um, Tom and Bob about what, how precisely they would deliver improved design standards, design quality? Yeah, or agency. 
you know, agency to do it. Okay, yeah. And to Tessa, see, that's really two questions in one. Actually, let's stick with the first one, and then I'll ask it to Tessa as well. Uh, let's start Tom this time. Well, one thing I think is whoever is commissioning it should do so with, with a degree of humility and with a maximum of public consultation, not least with the people who are going to have to li live with um, what, co uh, what you're commissioning, what you're designing. And the big lesson of the 60s or 70s was this, um, not the man in Whitehall knows best, but the, 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 the planner in the town hall knows best. And quite often those kind of decisions destroyed whole communities or created buildings um, which were a nightmare to live in. I mean, you, you can go now round London and find uh, 60s or 70s um, blocks with blind alleys, um, dangerous um, uh, parts where, where people were afraid to go. And I, I just think that, that if we're going to learn the le lesson of that period, um, which I think w was a bleak period for, for, for planning and design, it, it is to, to talk to the people who are going to have to, to use but I, um, those can I facilities. Can chip in? I mean, do you think that, and this is to, to all three of you, that there should be an agency or agencies that are kept going in order to give advice on aesthetics <coughs> to politicians? No. <laughs> no, absolutely not. No, you're having a laugh. <laughs> right, okay. You know, economic downturn. Right. Well, I, mean, I, I think there's a couple of ways of looking at it. At, uh, at First of all, in, in terms of the planning process, I think there's a couple of uh, things that we can do in practical terms. One, as I said, is actually mainstreaming consideration of design into the planning process. And the way I envisage doing that, as I said, first of all, is in our proposal to revise the, the PPS, PPGs, the you know, supplementary planning guidance and so on into this uh, overarching framework of planning priorities like they have in uh, Scotland and, and Wales which works well. We would include in that much more specific guidance and we'll consult on the detail of it because I, I, I don't want to impose it from but I want to take people with us. Much more specific guidance on the weight that should be given to the quality of design uh, in both individual applications and in master planning uh, for example and that would then be fed through into the local development plans of the individual authorities uh, and would be a significant consideration if it ever came to questions of appeal. So that's how I build that bit into it for a start. Uh, the second thing uh, which I think is important there uh, is to have some means of uh, ensuring uh, that there is access to good practice, uh, that there is access to the best ideas which are out there uh, at the moment. I mean, I talk to CAVE at the moment. I don't think we need uh, to have uh, another uh, body yeah. created. CAVE's there. It does valuable work. I think it's got a good relationship uh, with uh, all the political parties. It doesn't have, it's not a, you know, it doesn't claim to be a repository of all wisdom, but there's a starting point. And I think what I'd, we're wanting to do if we were in government is in the reforms to the planning process, not just to be talking to CAVE, but we need talking to all the key players. Britain's got some brilliant architects, international architects of the highest order. And I hope any new planning minister would actually be sitting down, getting these guys around the table and say, what are the key bits that we should be looking to put in uh, to those sets of planning priorities to ensure uh, that that can be um, entrenched in the system? We don't have a huge rate quango to do it, but you, what you do do is you, leave, you, leave, you use, if you like, the leverage ability uh, that the minister has uh, to pull those people together. Tessa. I agree with that. 
if you had an agency that kind of to which was subcontracted the consciousness of design you would never get the mainstream organizations learning to design well so that's why using the leverage of planning powers but building an intelligence and sensitivity to good design is best done by an expectation that you develop this capacity in local authorities housing associations and central government right okay Bob's comment on skateboarding reminded me that I was in a French town a couple of years ago where they actually built a feature in the town centre just for skateboarders and I was also in Lisbon recently where I noticed that the police have embraced segways I just wondered how important you thought that alternative means of transport are to be integrated into developing cities by which I mean not cars alternative means of transport no I mean were you seeing skateboards as a means of transport that's the thing yes yeah fair enough alright yeah fair enough alternative means of transport decarring cities decarring I think in the right circumstances they're a very important part of the mix and it's going to vary I think from city to city how best you do it and also within parts of the cities so for example it's much easier to provide alternatives within the centre of London than it is in parts of the suburbs in Bromley for example or something like that where it's much more spread out I'm a firm believer in walking that's the only decent form of exercise I do for example is walking and that's why I attach a lot of importance to design in the public realm so that places are actually attractive for people to walk and hopefully attractive for people to walk for most of the day not just during the hours when it's light and so on so it's got a raft of design issues there I'm very pro-bike I'm a retired cyclist now and I think we can do more with that I don't have an aversion to new ideas like skateboards I was recently looking at cleverer types of technology for cars my colleague Greg Clark is the Shadow Environment Secretary and I were looking at a production facility for some really very impressive electric cars which can give you the same sort of performance as you get out of saloon cars and so on so we need to make sure that we build into the planning process the means of getting the charging points and so on I'm totally up for that I have been arguing the case I don't think the money is going to be there in the immediate future for looking at extending the Croydon tram link further into Bromley these are all things which can be sensibly done sometimes that depends upon resource being available I'm totally open minded that's what we need is politicians to be open minded and say there's not a one size fits all but you do require a bit of sensitivity to each area to reflect the sort of particular geographic and spatial needs of the area and the sort of demands of the population that they're going to be putting upon it a high priority for charging points 100,000 across the UK in the over the lifetime of the next parliament so getting people to use more electric cars and the quality of electric cars obviously to improve and you know I think the more London can become a cyclist city you know the better a city it will be but the important thing is 
that you know it's it's safe for cyclists and uh, uh, you know but it, uh, I, you know the, the more cycle the more people cycle the safer it's likely likely to become but you no know, I'm absolutely with you and uh, the more we can get out of our cars and onto other forms of transport the better a city London will be during my murky PR days I was hired by a company that was tried to persuade Haringey Council to construct a, a ski lift type uh, from the nearest tube station to Ali Pali. But, but unfortunately not even Harrogate Council would buy it. It's not a bungee jump. <laughs> but no, I, I agree. I think I think we have we are getting away from the complete obsession with the car and it, it's great that we are looking at different options. Okay, I'll take one. We are up to coming up to eight. Are you all just one more? I've got yeah. yeah just you, one you've more. got to get one to get more. Yeah. Okay. Um, no. Who's, all right, you've got the mic. Got the mic. Go Sorry, everybody. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, just a, a very quick question, basically about school playing fields. I mean, we talked about open spaces, but I would say one of the great tragedies is a lot of children growing up without being able to play on a playing field or a park or something near them. I think that's very important. And I wonder if your parties have policies on protecting open spaces and specifically for people to be able to have the space to play and for children to play. Right. Um. No, I agree. I, I, I think the the um, the loss of school playing fields has been a disaster, and I know, as Tessa is about to probably tell us, that under Labour it was they were made to replace them with other leisure facilities. But I I know from my own youth there's nothing better than just an open green field to play on. Tessa, well. I Tom, I hope to disabuse you of this, but um, today kids would really like sort of multi or all-weather surfaces to play on, decent showers, and all the rest of it. And there has been, um, and it's part of the, That's the what's program. That's wrong with the youth of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Um, but I mean, one of the things, you know, the investment through the Building Schools for the Future program is improving the quality of sports facilities in every school. You cannot sell off a playing field now unless you cannot um, unless there is an absolutely compelling argument that means uh, the school will be able to offer better sport and you know there are some examples like you know playing fields that were sold after a school was closed or play, bits of playing fields that were sold in order to build a pavilion so that the kids would have somewhere to shelter if, um, if the weather was very wet. But you know, school, sport in schools, in state schools, is one of the quiet revolutions of the last eight years. And by the time we get to the Olympics, children in state school and up to the age of 16 will play five hours of sport a week and very importantly and competing and that has necessitated you know a huge increase um, in the investment in facilities. Well, I think there's quite a bit of consensus here I'm delighted that there's now moved back towards competitive sports in schools so I must remember a time when that was regarded as you know, being terribly incorrect I'm glad we have to, you know, what I think most people regard as the sensible approach uh, to all of that uh, and uh, within uh, my approach to planning it does seem to me that um, given that my party are committed to bringing in a presumption uh, in favour of sustainable only sustainable development part of that test of sustainability should be taking into account uh, those needs to maintain uh, both recreational space and 
uh, a green space. So I, I think we're all pretty much uh, uh, one on that. Okay, we're, we're at uh, just after eight o'clock. I think it would be fair, it's an election, if I could just ask, you know, in as many or fewer words as each of you wish to, uh, one final pitch, as it were, um, for why your party is the one uh, the people should vote for if they want, if they value cities and their future. We do it in reverse order from the start. So, Tom, what, what one thing would convince us all to vote Liberal Democrat? Because if either of these two go back with a majority on the 7th of May, within a week we'll be back to the same old, same old party politics, Yabu, the things that they're most comfortable in. If you really want to put a firework under a political system that has uh, caused so much public concern, then light a firework for the Liberal Democrats. Cities need strong leadership, uh, and what you need by strong leadership is not only a clear uh, policy from government in particular, therefore a clear mandate to deal with the economic mess that the country's in, but also a party which has a commitment to giving power back to cities in a meaningful way that includes transferring resource back into the hands of, of those who run the cities. Uh, and the Conservative Party is the only party which, with its pledges on local government finance reform, are committed to giving back the a measure of resource uh, towards local authorities and also with the power of general competence uh, to give them uh, the legal and delivery tools to enable them actually to give that strong leadership and that strong steer, sometimes with a mayor if they want it, <laughs> otherwise uh, with a strong, as George Jones would say, uh, a political council leader. Okay. And finally, Tessa. Okay, um, because only Labour has a plan for reducing the deficit uh, that will safeguard frontline public services. And uh, only Labour is committed perhaps to the biggest ambition of all, which is winning power in order to give it away. Because powerful cities are great places to live, places that people become proud, become proud to live in. Communities don't exist in abstract. They exist because of the combination of public investment, uh, private confidence, and uh, the growth of a public realm uh, in which democracy at a local level can flourish. So that's why you should vote Labour next Thursday. Thank you all. I'm sorry for those of you who didn't have loads of questions, loads of points. I'm sure you grabbed the politicians at the end. Thank you all for coming. I'd just like to say it's election time. Politicians work terribly hard. They've come here this evening. I think the magic of, of elections is, can never be understated. And those who take part, on the, take part in them and fight to get our votes deserve huge credit. So I'd like to thank you all on all our behalf. And I